Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Although genetic studies have identified several gene variants linked to Parkinson's disease, most of these studies have been conducted in populations of European and Asian ancestry. As a result, not much is known about the genes that may influence Parkinson's disease risk in Latinos. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing the Latin American Research Consortium on the Genetics of Parkinson's Disease, a multi-center collaboration that aims to uncover the genetic risk factors that play a role in the development of Parkinson's disease in Latinos. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute, and joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Ignacio Mata. Dr. Mata is assistant staff in the Genomic Medicine Institute within Cleveland Clinic's Learner Research Institute. Nacho, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you. So for our listeners that are out there, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and why you came to the Cleveland Clinic? Sure. So I'm originally from Spain. Uh, I, I grew up in Spain in a north northwest uh, part of Spain, no, no very uh, touristy area. Uh, I studied biology in college, and I got really interested in genetics, especially human genetics, uh, during my uh, my degree. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a PhD position to work in the local hospital uh, to study uh, human genetics. At the time, there were two uh, different research projects that they had. They had cardiovascular research, and then they also have neurological research. And I also became intrigued about the brain uh, during my neurology classes uh, in college. And I decided that maybe, you know, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's could be a good topic to, to study, especially because it was not very well understood what the genetic factors of those two diseases was. This was back in the 2000s. So, yeah, so that's how I got, you know, interested in neurogenetics. And then I came to the Mayo Clinic for a PhD fellowship uh, for about two years. And then I decided that I wanted to be in the U.S. I, th I thought that that was the, the best place for me to uh, develop my research career. So when I was here, I did a few interviews on the West Coast. I, I didn't enjoy the, the sun in Florida as much as I thought I, I would, uh, coming from a place where there's a lot of rain. So I ended up doing a postdoc fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle, which is much more similar to where I grew up. And I really enjoyed it, and I went through the ranks of the way to assistant professor there and um, Sir Nepity brought me to Cleveland. I came here to give a talk, uh, invited by an old colleague that used to work at the University of Washington and I found out that the Genomic Medicine Institute was looking for a neurogeneticist and I talked to a few of the faculty. I thought that the environment here was uh, incredible and I thought it would be a really good opportunity for me to start my own career as, a, as an independent uh, researcher. I applied for the, for the job and I was lucky enough to you know, be selected. And that's how I came here five years ago. Well, great. Well, you're a smart man uh, looking at the graying population, picking neurodegenerative diseases to look at seems like uh, job security. Yes, 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 for sure. There was a lot of things to understand and to find. The only problem is that the funding was really bad because people didn't really believe that there was any genetic component for most of those neurogenetic diseases that appear, you know, later on. Most, most of the genetic diseases are earlier on in life. So that was, that was the hardest part probably for the first 10 years or so. 
So before we get into the genetic component about it, why don't you just tell me the scope of the disorder? Uh, how many Parkinson's patients are there out there? Right. So there's about a million in the U.S., about 10 million in total around the uh, around the world. It affects all populations, uh, affects both genders, uh, although uh, it looks like males. We have a higher risk, about 1.5 uh, more than, than uh, women. It affects mostly people over the age of 60, but there's also, you know, individuals in their even in their teens, I've seen as young as 12 that can develop the disease. And, you know, the TV's been inundated with Camp Lejeune. And uh, I think there was a paper uh, published very recently uh, that looked at an association of a chemical in the water there with Parkinson's disease. So I'm hearing a lot uh, about Parkinson's disease. Anything you want to share about that? Yeah, no, no, I think that's that's great. And uh, I mean, this is really the most important part of understanding the disease is that it's very complex. Uh, it's very complex from the clinical point of view. Uh, every patient is different in the terms of what symptoms they develop, when they develop it, how they develop the progression. There's a lot of uh, heterogeneity between uh individuals with Parkinson's disease. Uh, so I, I, I think that uh, that's a, a, a big uh, signal of how complex the disease is. And we, now we know, now that we know a lot of the genetic causes, we know that biologically is very uh, heterogeneous as well. I, I don't believe that genetics is going to explain the whole risk of the, of the disease. I think environment plays a, a huge role. And originally, when I started, most people thought that it was 100% environmental. They thought it was a virus uh, exposure, um, an environmental exposure that uh, created this man-made uh, disease. Now we know that there's really a combination of both things in most cases. There are some individuals that are only genetic, so monogenic familial forms of Parkinson's. There's others, for example, people that work in the fields with pesticides or even individuals that have gone to war. Agent Orange seems to be also a, a risk factor. But then in most people, it's a combination of both things. Yeah, it's a genetic predisposition together with some kind of environmental trigger, probably. Yeah, so certainly it's it's shining a bright light on Parkinson's disease this day, uh, specifically from the environmental uh, related. So we'll see what happens with that. But today we're going to really focus on the genetics. Uh, I think there was a lot of interest in Parkinson's disease when Michael J. Fox uh, develop Parkinson's disease. And, you know, we can maybe get to that uh, in a little bit because he was quite young when he got it. So mm -hmm. obviously then you start being a little more concerned about genetic risks and those types of things. But, you know, can affect a lot of different ages. Doesn't have to be just older patients, right? That's correct. Yeah. So as we move closer here, you uh, have the distinction of being the U.S. coordinator of the Latin American Research Consortium on the Genetics of Parkinson's Disease. Uh, that's a mouthful. So I think you break that down to large PD. Yeah. Uh, that's acronym. Makes it a lot easier <laughs> using that acronym. But tell us about large PD. Uh, why it was established and what you're looking to accomplish uh, short-term and long-term with it. So this is something that I started as a PhD student. A lot of people are surprised that, you know, a, a young investigator kind of came up with this plan. And it is probably because now it looks like a huge thing. But when I started, that was not the goal. My goal was not to have the largest, you know, consortium of non-European uh, individuals. Uh, uh, so I, I started this with a trip to Peru, actually, my first 
first trip to Latin America, I got invited uh, to give a talk about uh, one of the genes that I uh, found in Parkinson's disease uh, back in 2005. And after my talk, I had a lot of clinicians that you know came um, to talk to me and asked me if I knew that 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 particular gene had also families in you know of Latino origin. You know, I had to pause for a minute and I realized that I, I wasn't sure there were any studies outside of European uh, populations because I had been to study a lot of people from Spain, many countries in Europe, and then most of my patients came from the U.S. and most of them were actually, you know, European ancestry individuals. So I went, you know, that night to PubMed and looked and there was zero papers on uh, Latinos and, and, uh, and this gene specifically and there were no really done on the genetics of, of Parkinson's disease in Latinos at all. I think there was maybe like four or five papers in looking at specific genes. So I talked to the clinician and I said, look, the truth is that I don't think this has been studied. And they said, okay, how can we do this? We don't, we don't have the resources to be able to screen. There is, uh, this gene is very large. It has 51 exons. It's one of the biggest uh, genes in, um, in the genome. So I, I kind of talked to my boss at the, at the time at the Mayo Clinic we were screening close to two or 300 patients a week. Uh, and I said, hey, would it be okay if I asked them to send me the samples and we'll just put them with the other samples and see if we can find any uh, carriers? And, you know, he was nice enough to say, sure. I mean, the, the, the cost wasn't going to be huge because we already had a nice budget to be able to uh, do this in Europeans. And that's kind of how this got started. It was a way for me to help them identify any possible patients that had uh, mutations in this gene. And, you know, we started to publish. Uh, more patients started to hear about this project. Uh, other countries in Latin America heard about what we were doing and they started emailing me and they said, hey, we want to participate. How can we get our uh, patients screened? And I, I realized that there was an opportunity for me to perhaps find my, my niche. As a researchers, we're always trying to find something that might separate us to our uh, former mentors without having to leave the disease. I felt really attached to Parkinson's disease. Uh, but I, I thought, you know, that it would be great, you know, to be able to create this group of researchers and clinicians that together could, could work towards understanding the genetics of Parkinson's disease in this uh, population. Um, and again, we started in 2000. 2005. Nobody wanted to study uh, populations outside of Europe, mostly because, you know, we always think about genetics, about homogeneous populations. You know, uh, is the easier way to find new genes is when you have a population that is very similar to one another, and then it's easier to find those uh, small variants that might distinguish people that have a disease versus people that don't have a disease. When you have a population that like, like Latinos, where there's a mixture of the native uh, individuals that live there, together with a lot of European, different European countries that had invaded them through the years, and then even African with the uh, slave trade. So it's a very mixed population that, from the genetic point of view, it always looked like a very hard population to, uh, to study. And that's how we got started, and uh, we didn't get really funding until 2011. So for six years, we were working with, with no funding, again, because nobody really believed that we could find anything studying such a diverse, mixed population. So once we got the money, and then we really started recruiting patients, uh, and now we have uh, close to 6,000 individuals uh, for, uh, as you mentioned, in, from 40 different institutions in about 13 different different countries all across the Americans and the Caribbean. So what I'd like to know now is what have you found? <laughs> what's what's uh, 
what surprised you? What's interesting? What did you expect? And that's what it was, or or was it all quite surprising? Or it's too early to tell. No, no, no. We we have definitely uh, results, which is very is very nice because now we're seeing the result of, of of all the work that we put for the last you know sixteen years. You know, the first studies were just looking at specific genes, and some of the things that we started to realize is that this huge admixture that exists and the different ancestries that these individuals uh, carry, you know, predispose them in a different way to, in this case, Parkinson's, but really all the diseases. And for example, so the first study that we did with this uh, uh, gene, LERC2, um, which is very common in Europeans, was that when we studied in different countries in Latin America, we, we saw a almost perfect correlation between the amount of carriers that we had for that specific variant and the percentage of European ancestry. So most of these variants actually came from Europe. You know, it comes from one single uh, founder. We call it a founder effect. So probably some of the uh, individuals from Europe that traveled to Latin America to to conquer the you know the continent actually brought with them uh, some of these mutations and individuals that are mostly Europeans in some of these uh, Latin American countries have a much higher risk to uh, carry one of these uh, uh, variants and the you know in countries like Peru for example where most of the individuals have about 70, 75% uh, uh, indigenous Amerindian ancestry. There was a lot of these variants that we didn't find. That didn't mean that they didn't have Parkinson's. In fact, they, it seems like they have the same amount of Parkinson's that we see in other countries, but it looks like at least genetically, the, the, the cause is different. It might be a different variant in the same gene or different genes that we haven't uh, identified. So th those are were the original you know, studies that we did because our cohort was not large enough. Now. We're getting to, you know, having thousands of numbers uh, in our cohorts is allowing us to do much larger studies. So the latest one that we have done is a genome-wide association study, or GWAS. We, we call uh, GWAS, where you compare a very large number of cases uh, with the disease that you uh, are trying to study and a large number of controls that are matched in age, gender, and uh, hopefully, you know, where they're coming from in terms of ancestry. And then you look for variants that are in, in a, a different frequency between the two groups, uh, telling you that if it's more frequent in cases, then it might be a risk variant versus something that might become more common in controls where maybe it's a protective variant. Uh, and these association studies has allowed us to really start to understand what the genetic architecture of Parkinson's disease is in Latinos. And we know that it's about 80% similar to Europeans, but there are uh, new genes that we have identified mostly associated to the ancestry that is not the European ancestry, so mostly associated to both the indigenous and the African uh, ancestry. And average number of causal genes? So in total for, for Parkinson's disease, we have about uh, 24 that are familial. So those are, if you have a variant in those genes, you're mostly going to develop the disease. So we call them causal variants. And then there's probably over 100 that we have identified that are risk variants. Uh, this means that these variants do not cause Parkinson's, but increase your risk. And most of us carry several of these variants. Uh, so we use uh, something called polygenic risk score. So we calculate uh, how much each of them add and how many you carry. And then we can tell what is your actual total risk uh, comparing all those uh, variants. So the, again, it's very complex, as I mentioned at the beginning, biologically it's very complex disease. And uh, probably every patient has a different combination of different variants in different genes, different pathways affected. And that's why I think it's very hard to, you know, to understand the, the cause and also to treat it because we're really treating patients as a whole, as a 
one disease, but uh, most of us believe that Parkinson's disease is actually multiple diseases. It's not only just one. One of my fellows said I should ask you about LARC2 because that's always involved. You mentioned it briefly. Yeah. Do you see it in other disorders as well? or? Yeah, so yeah, there are mutations in LARC2 that affects like IBD, for example, some cancers. There are other genes also, especially the early onset genes are um, also affecting certain types of cancers, especially like melanoma. Uh, so yeah, the, the, there's definitely cross-pollination of uh, genetics and, and different variants. One, one thing that uh, we're very surprised is that there's not a lot crossing between Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. You would think that, you know, neurogenic diseases are fairly similar. They both have aggregation of a protein that shows up in the neurons of uh, the affected brains. So we, we always thought that there would maybe be more cross um, genetic uh, overlap, but we don't, we don't see that. But we do, we do see it with other diseases for sure. So you mentioned initially that it was thought that 100% of this was genetic and now it's less. Where, where do you sit now? What percentage of patients? I guess maybe, again, you can make the argument it's all, everybody has some predisposition. Yeah. So we thought it was 100% environmental, and now we know that there's some genetics. We, I, I don't think we ever uh, believed that it was 100% uh, genetic. So right now, with all the genes that we have, we can explain about one-third of the heritability. And we think that heritability in Parkinson's is around 20 or 30%. So that means that 30% is probably coming from genetics, 70% is coming from other other things, at least with the genetics that we know, because we have tunnel vision about what, what things we're looking in genetics is. Uh, you know, we're always looking at the coding variants in the exons. There's other variants outside of the exons that, you know, what, what we call the garbage uh, DNA that we now know is not garbage. There's also epigenetics uh, that, can, that can happen. And a lot of those topics have not been really explored uh, in Parkinson's disease. So a lot of people are getting genetic testing, you know, have a kit sent for Christmas. 23andMe, these mm -hmm. various things. Does it test any of these genes? Yeah, actually, that's that's very funny that you ask this because, uh, yeah, uh, 23andMe tests for LERC2, for the most common LERC2 uh, variant. And the, the reason why is because, actually, so 23andMe is owned by Sergey Brin's, and Sergey Brin is the Google guy. And his mom has Parkinson's. He, she got tested, and she has the LERC2, and he also carries the LERC2 variant. So he put a lot of money to make sure that 23andMe actually had this variant, and in in fact, 23andMe has one of the largest cohorts of Parkinson's patients uh, in the world because of that. They were offering uh, genetic testing for Parkinson's patients for free. But again, uh, one of the problems with this do-at-home testing is that it doesn't come with genetic education or uh, counseling, right? And uh, being such a complex disease in terms of genetics, sometimes it's really hard to make up what, what that means, especially for people that don't have any symptoms, because it means that you have a high risk, but it doesn't mean that you're going to uh, d develop the disease and you don't even know when. So I, I always tell people that uh, to be very careful when you do those kind of tests, because you might find something that you don't want to know, but it is definitely included in the, in the 23andMe test. Yeah, my kids got that for my wife and I for Christmas a few years ago, and I think it was just to torture us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've been very, very careful not to look very specifically at anything. Okay. And I still don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, but I never think about it and I don't worry about anything. Yeah, I mean, there, there are things that definitely, like, you know, cardiovascular disease, that there are things that, you know, you can, you can do uh, things to protect yourself. Uh, but, uh, you know, my... 
Uh, my advice to people, especially to Parkinson's disease family members, is that if you have a family history of the disease, you might want to avoid some of the environmental factors. The genetics, you can't do anything about it, unfortunately. Right. Uh, so just be careful with environmental factors that we know. Try to not get exposed to pesticides, some of these chemicals, uh, you know, uh, heavy metals, those things. And then, although we all should be doing this, we, you should eat a healthier exercise. We know exercise is a huge, uh, has a huge uh, protective effect, both for Parkinson's but also for the progression once you develop the disease. So who should be tested? Uh, so we we recommend that people that have a family history uh, or if you have a very early age of onset, so earlier than 40, for example, 40 years old, those people have a higher likelihood of having a genetic uh, form of Parkinson's. So we, we think that those individuals should be doing first. Uh, however, things are changing a lot. And um, what I'm saying is, is because you know, something that I never thought it would happen in my lifetime, uh, and I always was very careful when I talked to patients about genetic research was that, oh, I said, well, if we find a gene, there might be 20, 30, 40 years before something gets developed. So, you know, things go really slow. Uh, now with the technology and the, the access and the resources that we have, now we have like probably close to 10 different ongoing clinical trials for specific genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. And what that means is that actually now having the genetic information might help you or uh, qualify you to participate in one of these uh, clinical trials. These are really, on my mind, the, the first trials that are trying to slow or stop the disease. And most of the trials that we have are to deal with the symptoms. Uh, but, you know, once you try to attack the biology of the disease, I think you have a better chance of actually slowing the progression. You know, so I, I, now I'm, I'm trying to uh, tell people that, you know, at least testing for these genes where there's a possible clinical trial for everybody might be worth it because even if you don't have a, a family member affected, it doesn't mean that you don't have one of these variants because they are common in uh, in the Parkinson's cohorts. And uh, and again, it will open a lot of doors f to participate in these clinical trials. So, so I think that things are switching all the time depending on, you know, all the advances that we have. And are there other underserved populations out there that we need to do the same thing with? Yeah, so so there's a, there's a couple of initiatives here in the U.S. Uh, the main one is probably is, is called Black PD, which uh, uh, you know is trying to engage with the African American Black community here in the in the U.S. I think that's a big project because it's a big population uh, through the Global Parkinson's Genetic Project or GP2. Uh, we're also trying to go to Asia, but especially Southeast Asia uh, instead of like main, mainland China or Japan where most of the studies in Asia are coming from, and then India. India is a country with more than 1 billion individuals where there's no genetic research that was being done. So now through GP2, we're also trying to engage with individuals there, and we have about 20,000 samples that have been collected. Uh, so I, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more genetic studies from these uh, underrepresented populations. So if somebody wanted to look at an initiative in one of these other populations. Any words of wisdom for uh, for them that you could share with what you've been through over the years? Yeah, and I and I do this a lot for the Parkinson's Foundation and the Michael J. Fox Foundation to try to advise them about how to start, especially with the Latino community, which is the one that I have uh, the most experience. And one of the 
things that I tell people is that they need to have patience. Uh, a lot of individuals that want to perhaps engage with one of these minority communities in their environment is that um, they think, for example, for the Latinos, they said, oh, well, I'll just translate you know, my documents to Spanish, maybe hire somebody that speaks Spanish, and that should be it. Uh, but the truth is that it's, it's a lot harder than that because a lot of the times you encounter a cohort or a community of individuals that are not aware of what research is. They might even be afraid. There's a lot of uh, uh, mistrust into in, in research, especially genetic research in particular. Uh, so I think there has to be a lot of education that happens before you can actually offer somebody to participate in a, in a research project. And then the other thing that to me is very important is you need to bring the research to the participant and not the participant to the research. For example, here in Northeast Ohio, you know, we have main campus. We're very, you know, we're always looking at main campus as the as the uh, hub for everything. But the truth is that the minority communities might live an hour or two hours from here. And sometimes it's not possible for them to come all the way here to do a two or three hour uh, research visit. So we need to work with the, you know, with the communities or where the communities are, with the small hospitals uh, where these patients are being seen and kind of bring the research to them to open it up. I think that's the other uh, advice that I would give people is to, to try to work better with the communities and listen to the communities. We listen what the what the needs are and, and how you can uh, you know facilitate their participation. And I, and I think if you educate them and you facilitate that, they, they'll participate. Any final takeaways for our, our audience? So I, I can tell you the, the story of how I got involved in Parkinson's disease okay. and, uh, because I, I think it's, it's very interesting in, in, and it has made me like really, really, as I said, attached to this disease. And is that, so my research started in Spain uh, through a grant that was paid by patients. It was the first uh, research grant in, uh, in the whole country for any disease that was actually paid by patients. Uh, it wasn't not a lot of money, but uh, it, it, it made me, which is something that there's a big disconnection between the researchers and the, the, the patients that have the disease that they study, that, you know, we are in the lab, they're in other places, the clinicians are kind of like the link between the two of them. But because I was working for them, uh, you know, I got to talk to them, I, I, I listened to them, I gave talks to them. So I really learned how to engage with the, with the individuals and I, I kind of, fell in love with that with that community and uh, you know there's been a couple of opportunities for me to move on and maybe use my skill sets to, to study other diseases but I always thought that I I owe them to them that they put that faith into into me uh, to to do research and uh, this fellowship is still going this was started in 2001 they're now in their eighth uh, different uh, fellow and three of us are actually in the U.S. doing pretty high quality uh, research so I think uh, you know we have to owe to them that they, they put that faith into us. So. Well, Nacho, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been very insightful, and I appreciate your time. Thank yeah, you very much. Thank you for the invite. This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.